Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and with those stories, we've also shared insights, ideas, and critiques. We think of them as the stories about stories, the stories behind stories, stories that prepare us for the journey we're about to undertake. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Today, Aaron Dewar will be reading Vera Rado's introduction to the Shoehorn Sonata, which was first performed in 1995 at the Ensemble Theatre in Sydney. Vera was one of the many prisoners of war that John Misto interviewed when conducting research for his play. She was imprisoned by the Japanese as a teenager, first in Indonesia before being moved through several other camps. She endured three years in captivity and was moved to tears when she saw John's play because her story was finally being recognised. Here's Erin Dewar reading Scores to be Settled, which Vera wrote to coincide with the play's publication in 1996. John Misto's play The Shoehorn Sonata is as much the untold story of hundreds of thousands of women imprisoned by the Japanese in Southeast Asia as a ringing indictment against Australian indifference to the lot of these women. The internees who included Australian army nurses are the forgotten war trauma victims who were just left to get on with life. Well known are the tales of the Burma Railroad, the POWs of Changi, Sandakan and other places, but who's ever heard of Muntok, Balalao, the camp nobody talks about, Sidang, Adak or Tangerang? If the play goes beyond the familiar and comfortable, it is precisely the playwright's intention to startle his audience with unquestionable facts. This is no fiction. It is a slice of potent historical evidence. In October 1994, I received a letter from John Misto requesting an interview to enable him to write the play as honestly and accurately as possible. I readily acceded. Having been a teenage prisoner of the Japanese during the Great War, I had begun a campaign a few years earlier through letters to the major newspapers to try and redirect the public outpourings of sympathy for the victims of Hiroshima by pointing out that there exists a large group of victims of the Japanese who for years moulded and died in prisons rife with disease and vermin. These women and children were not annihilated in one superblast but went through years of hell. They were innocent. Many of them were Australians and they still continue to suffer. The interview with John Misto, who traced me through one of my letters, left me quite elated. Here, at last, was someone who had recognised the injustice and who was not only prepared to, but eminently capable of addressing the imbalance in public perception. During our talks, I learnt that successive Australian governments had ignored the right of female ex-prisoners for recognition and compassion. As Bridie remarks in the play, they told us we were on our own, just as they told us to keep smiling, referring to a message to keep smiling from Prime Minister Curtin, conveyed by the Japanese guard to the starving, dying army nurses. John Misto proved to be an exceptionally sensitive, perceptive and discreet interviewer, whose questions showed a deep knowledge of his subject, the result of intensive research. They were directed less at my personal experiences than at how Without the benefit of modern de-traumatisation procedures, I got on with life. After some groping, I'd never thought about it, I found the answer in the words of the character Sheila in the play. When something hurts, you run away, or you dig a hole and bury it. 
Most survivors of trauma do both. They don't want to talk about it and sweep unwelcome memories into some vast garbage bag below the level of consciousness. Sooner or later, the repressed memories start to fester, translating themselves into physical pain which cannot be ignored without fatal consequences. You either haul them out and tell or die slowly. Such unassisted cases of self-rehabilitation can take between 30 and 50 years, hence the recent spate of war stories from those who can finally tell. In the Shoehorn Sonata, the craft of the skilful playwright is demonstrated by the choice of a simple implement, a shoehorn, to centre the plot. It unites both narrative and dialogue and acts as catalyst for dramatic revelations. To one party, the shoehorn is a good luck omen, To the other, a symbol of fear, pain and degradation. To both, eventually, the means of reconciliation. When the shoehorn is restored to its owner, the war is over for us. It plays a role in the prisoner's survival. Fifty voices and a shoehorn set us free. It is indispensable for burying the dead, when a spade is the stuff of dreams along with juicy steaks, fresh fruit and soap. There is pathos, friction role reversal and anguished introspection moving the two women. Who saved whose life? Who was whose keeper? The impartial interviewer, a disembodied voice, brings about a re-examination of values and truths 50 years on, leading to devastating insights. Would Bridie have saved Sheila's life by selling her body for quinine? Rather than answering the question, the other is reproached for not letting her die. But in the antiseptic world of the nursing sister, such sacrifice is both repugnant and of an enormity beyond match. The creative use of humour brings a freshness to the play which enables interest to be sustained. Unrelieved misery would have created a feeling of depression. Humour diffuses situations verging on the maudlin. It softens too abrasive exchange. It highlights the comic aspects of painful incidents. Setting the play in the present time and working through the women's collective memories was a brilliant idea. It is possible to laugh today at what was far from a laughing matter at the time it happened. Light banter is quite inconsistent with life and death situations, when even a smile would have set off the wrath of some Japanese guard. Especially poignant is the women's shared reminiscence of their harrowing climb, whipped on by the enemy, to the top of a hill where they expect to be executed. It is a fitting apotheosis of their endurance, their suffering and their final reconciliation. Fifty years of unexpressed grief, undeclared affection and unrevealed secrets are dissolved in their reaffirmation of a comradeship that has withstood time and the most lacerating of circumstances. This scene leaves very few dry eyes amongst the audience. The Shoehorn Sonata opened at the Ensemble Theatre, Sydney, on the 3rd of August, 1995. I was privileged to be one of the invitees and, as John Misto puts it, one of his most important critics. For me, it was an overwhelming, even a cathartic experience. It is not easy to live through those times again, to be transported through the agonies of starvation, deprivation of freedom, beatings and long stretches of dull despair to experience again the undiluted terror of being delivered to a totally ruthless, brutish and brutal enemy with no protection from law or authorities. This is a fear that is inexpressible, incomprehensible to those who have never experienced it. 
a dread that strikes at the root of one's survival, an existential fear. It is what Bridie experiences when she is surrounded by Japanese tourists and flees from the store in utter panic. The Shuhon Sonata has to be classed as a first in calling public attention to the atrocities suffered by women at the hands of the Japanese. The voice of women is not heard enough in male-dominated society in general and in professions such as the military in particular. John Misto has whipped aside the curtain and revealed the unsuspected, little-known and sheer unbelievable acts of sadism and depravity committed against women in captivity. Far from making concessions because of gender, the Japanese treated women often more brutally even than men. This is not surprising when one reflects that in their hierarchically structured society, women are at the bottom of the heap, just objects to be used at will. The campaign for justice and compensation still goes on. The former army nurses are still without a fitting memorial to their service during the war, their heroism and endurance during captivity. So far, Australian governments have shown little inclination to give them and other ex-internees full recognition. Japanese governments have let their war heroes get away with much more than simple murder. Instead of bringing them to justice as war criminals, they are being paid regular homage at their sacred shrine in Tokyo. Today, more than 50 years after the end of World War II, we have a situation where scores still remain to be settled. John Misto has brought this to our attention most dramatically. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press.